1: We shouldn't, as Democrats, be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms.
2: I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Friday, folks. Friday, folks. We made it through another week. Texas and Minnesota relaxing some of their lockdown measures. This as the administration now saying that they had the guidelines to reopen parts of the economy within the next month or two. President Trump locked in a back and forth, not with the media, not with Speaker Pelosi, but with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. They're mocking each other now in real time over virus aid. It's all turned political, all of that. Speaking of which, the ineptitude ineptitude, and ineffectiveness coming from the halls of a deserted Congress, what the heck is going on with the Small Business Administration loans? When will that get replenish. We're going to check in with exclusively with Congressman Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina. I caught up with him earlier today. He's the top Republican on the Financial Services Committee, the all-important Financial Services Committee. Plus, get this, Tim Carney's going to be on. He's the author of Alienated America. So excited to talk to him. He's a senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. The AEI has been One of the dominant forces in the administration's um, uh, uh, behind-the-scenes brain trust, so to speak, uh, in handling the um, uh, coronavirus. Al Motter's back, Democratic strategist, partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, and Hagar Shamali returns. We made it through another week. And you know what? I went on a walk today, walking around Washington, D.C., in between the TV hits, and I thought I was on a mission to find pizza and it, I, I realized that so many great D.C. restaurants are really being creative in terms of how they are serving food uh, on street side, curbside, coffee shops. You can go on their apps, get some local coffee. You got to wear the mask, but you can still support the local economy. I love it. So I got my pizza. I, I want to be you know, polite and not say which pizza place. But it's, it gave me a lot of ideas. So next week, I think what we're going to do is try to uh, tap into the ingenuity and the genius here in the D.C. area and all of the incredible entrepreneurship that's been going on. Uh, it's really inspiring, but also to find out uh, how people have been getting or not getting the economic aid because the Small Business Administration has been – they've run out of cash. They've run out of the loans. I mean, you can't even – And and the, the Republicans and the Democrats, they've been fighting and fighting and back and forth and back and forth. So I want to hear from you business owners all next week. Reach out to me, DM me, at me, easy to find, at Kev Cirilli. And um, let's talk. Let's have a conversation about how the federal government is or is not helping you. That was the, that was the start of my conversation, by the way, with uh, Congressman Patrick McHenry, who is a Republican from North Carolina. He's the ranking member on the House Financial Services Committee. So last week we had the chairwoman, Maxine Waters. This week we delivered Patrick McHenry, the Republican from North Carolina. Take a listen to my interview with him from earlier today on Bloomberg Television. What is going on with the Small Business Administration, and when are lawmakers going to re-up and reapprove some more funds for small businesses?
3: Well, sadly, this has become a piece of partisan haggling, and I think uh, it is uh, quite unfair to the small businesses across the country. This small business program, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, uh, is the most popular program Congress has authorized in my time in Washington. And so what I would say is there's a massive pressure on uh, the elected class to get on with it and to refill the funds here. Um, They've gone at an unprecedented pace because there's an unprecedented demand among small businesses to make payroll and pay their rent. And so, you know, the the animal instincts of the uh, American small business person is there. They want to get on with it, and they need this relief so they can get on with it.
2: Congressman, I mean, take us behind the scenes here and and just remove the partisanship for one second. Process-wise, what is going on? Why didn't leadership on both sides of the aisle actually execute this and get this done?
3: Well, because uh, the the Democrats have additional requests. They they want prioritized. The immediate need right now is because the funds have run out. Uh, The immediate need right now is to refill the money in the Paycheck Protection Act. Uh, The Democrats want further relief for states. And for hospitals, those funds are still widely available as a part of the CARES Act. So I think at the end of the day, we'll have a reasonable trade off. Cooler heads will prevail uh, because this is a very popular program that needs reauthorization and needs uh, more funding.
2: It's, it's frustrating, I think, because every source that I've talked with in the business community, big business and small business, they don't understand why this hasn't been uh, executed more effectively moving on president trump yesterday president trump announced guidelines to reopen the economy what's your response to that
3: well i think uh, i think it, it's reasonable uh, this is in the hands of uh, cities counties and states uh, they have the main police power here not the federal government and so uh, to put out the metrics by which we should open the economy i think it's a reasonable thing for presidential leadership to be exerted here And I think that uh, state governors are doing the best that they can uh, to match the needs of their people and public safety and economic life here. And those tradeoffs are really tough, uh, very tough, especially given the public health consequences and economic consequences that are at stake here. Uh, But I think these metrics are much needed, uh, quite necessary, of course. uh, And uh, this can give the public a better view of, of the conditions by which we get back to economic life.
2: But I guess, how do you balance, though, the need for public health concerns while also the economic fallout that that has been uh, that has occurred and just devastated the country?
3: Well, look, this, this is a tough, tough thing. We've we've uh, not dealt with this. We've dealt with acts of war. We've dealt with natural disasters. But this is truly an act of God outside of uh, normal confines and thought processes of government. And so, those trade-offs have to be made and have to be balanced. And different states, different governors, uh, different uh, officials will come to different conclusions. It's not about ideology. It's about the practical trade-off yeah. between economic life and public health.
2: And just a final issue. Uh, we've talked about this before. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China and the United States' relationship with European allies through the lens of the Chinese backdrop?
3: Well, I think what's clear is the Chinese regime, uh, the communist regime of China uh, lies. Uh, that is uh, the, the one thing that's, that's clear about it. I think the, the challenge here uh, for us internationally is to continue to, to have uh, an open economy when we have had such a earth-shattering and earth-shaking uh, economic uh, impact uh, of this virus. I think in the short run, our relationship with China is going to be much hurt by this, uh, uh, by their lack of transparency in the initial stages of of this disease. And then uh, their propaganda campaign to say that they had nothing to do with it uh, is deeply troubling to Europeans and and those here in in America as well.
2: That was Congressman Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina. He is the top Republican on the Financial Services Committee. And uh, earlier in the day before that, that interview, you can, by the way, you can check it out on Bloomberg.com. But earlier prior to that interview, I was speaking with some sources on the other side of the aisle, Democrats. And I got to be candid, folks. I mean, there is a- agreement. That at minimum China has to answer some of these questions that are out there, and that's not just that. That's been the unifying thread here. Now, how they go about asking those questions is going to be, quite frankly, the dominant uh, uh, foreign policy geopolitical shift, at least for the next two years. Coming up, we continue the conversation with Tim Carney uh, from the Washington Examiner and the American Enterprise Institute. How are they or won't they be looking into that Wuhan lab? I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Born to run, born to run. <laughs> I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're all working from home, right? So I, I want to give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes window into my life, right? Not too much. <laughs> but we have a video chat open for the show for all of our production of Matt Shirley and, uh, and Christine Murata. And they, they they think that if they're talking that you can hear them, but they, but they can't because I mute them, because I'm not, you know, I'm a little more, uh, I'm uh, smart, I'm, there's more than meets the eye, folks. All right, enough about me and our video chat, but I'm very excited to welcome to the program uh someone who has really been a driving force in terms of the conversation around the questions that uh, Xi Jinping is going to have to answer. Uh, And if not to his own people, definitely to the international community. Of course, I'm talking about Tim Carney. He is the author of Alienated America. He is a senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Tim, first of all, thank you so much for your time. And Let's begin with the Washington Examiner's editorial headlined, Investigate the Wuhan Lab. Perhaps the coronavirus pandemic began in a Wuhan wet market, as is most commonly claimed, but it makes no sense to dismiss the alternate theory that it escaped from a Chinese laboratory. How does the U.S. investigate China?
3: Well, uh, first, thanks for having me on.
4: Second, first, let's clarify kind of all the different stories that get folded into one. Because when I've seen the coverage of this, people have jumped from the the words in that editorial, escaped from a lab. And they've assumed that this implies one of four other things, either that we're, that were suspecting that this was some bioweapon engineered in the lab. No, scientists have basically said this clearly was a virus that was in bats which is where coronaviruses tend to come from. And it, it wasn't deliberately released. Is not at all what anybody, either our editorial or Tom Cotton has suggested, but that this was a lab that really did experiment on study and try to better understand coronaviruses. But it also was notoriously bad at security. And that, that was one of the – Josh Rogan in the, uh, in the Washington Post had a piece about our U.S. State Department walked around the lab and looked at it and found security labs. So that gets to your question. How do we investigate it? Well, it's not easy, right? <laughs> China's pretty good at hiding what it doesn't want known, um, But there can be diplomatic pressure. There were State Department people who went in there. What did they find? Can we get more people in there? And if not, why not?
2: Yeah, I'd like to know what they found. And, and, you know, once lawmakers are able to return to uh, to Congress, I, I would imagine one of the tools that, that lawmakers have at their disposal is to hold hearings. Uh, another tool mm-hmm. is more economic pressure. But, you know, and we, this has been a, a common thread over the past several days, specifically this week on this program, that it's we can't look at U.S.-China relations in a bilateral vacuum. How do you think, Tim— the uh, China's lack of transparency at, at best to put it simply, how do you think that's going to impact Europe's relationship with China India's relationship with China and other counterparts around the world's relationships with china
4: Well so this is one of the uh, one of the things that really puts Trump in a uh, the Trump administration in a tricky spot because they've been trying to sort of combat China has been one of the recent Things that Trump has been talking about—they're trying to cast Joe Biden as uh, too cozy on China and that kind of thing. But the traditional tools that administrations—Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama—used to combat China was engaging the rest of the world. That's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was about: get these Pacific countries to think, "Okay, I'm in the U.S. orbit, so no, I'm not going to reach out to China." for building of a port, for, you know, other infrastructure, that sort of thing. And so one of the criticisms of Trump that uh, I think has some truth is that his disengagement from so much of the rest of the world has meant that people looking for, um, countries looking for an ally, for sort of a big brother, have uh, turned to China. But now now that this, uh, Tom Cotton called this the most deadly cover-up in history, if Chinese dishonesty and seasons has caused this uh, pandemic to be as bad as it is, or at least sort of uh, – yeah, has caused it to be as bad as it is, then it'll be really hard for us, Sri Lanka or an in India or those other countries to trust uh, China again. So, so in a the- sort of perverse way, it's, it's a potential opportunity for the U.S. to sort of regain that, uh, the, the world leader status.
2: Tim Carney's on the line. He's the author of Alienated America. He's also a senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Tim, sticking with that point, so here in the United States, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are raising and asking questions to Xi Jinping and to the China Communist Party. How is Europe reacting? Uh, how how are, you, are, are Europeans, do they share in the frustration? Do they share in the questions? That, uh, they're, that quiet. They have, they're, they're They've been quiet, right?
4: I, why is that? This is this has always been the case. I mean, I'm old enough to sort of remember the end of the, the Tim, Cold War. You're not War, that old, I, buddy. I,
2: you're not that old. Take I, my I, word I, for it.
4: I, I saw Rocky uh, Four. That was part of the Cold War and, <laughs> and Red Dawn. Okay. We're but talking no, Rocky on
2: Friday. And, I feel like I'm back in Delco. Go
0: ahead.
4: <laughs> if you read if you read on the Cold War, you see that when it came to confronting the Soviet Union. We would lead the United States, and Europe would sort of either kind of get in our, in our, uh, our tailwinds or would be like, oh, you might be going a little too far there. That's always been the history of uh, the U.S. when facing somebody who might be sort of a malevolent global force. And right now, China is the communist the largest country in the world. It's communist. It's increasingly authoritarian. We thought it was going in the other direction before Xi Jinping, and now it looks like it's going in the authoritarian direction. And so, no, p e And they do the same with Russia. They don't really criticize Putin. Um, I mean, to some extent, Trump's criticized Putin more than most uh, European leaders. So that's... I don't know. I, I, I don't like to be going off about sort of European uh, weenies, but they are not no. the type of people to confront... Um, in the in the Cold War era, uh, these communist leaders. You know, I mean, I, I mean they, they were the first ones to confront the Nazis. Okay, I'll give them that. But since then, um, no, they they haven't been taking the lead. Tim,
2: thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it as always. I hope you come back. Uh, thanks for all of the work that you're doing on this issue and others. And just to quote Rocky Four, "What a depressing vacation." Meanwhile, coming up next, we check in with other insiders, including Hagar Shamali, to talk more foreign policy and politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli, the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You can't make this up. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Here's your fun fact of the day. The Bat Conservation International named today Bat Appreciation Day. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, Learn more about QuickBooks Money at QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm
2: Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg. Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm not losing it, folks. This video chat, they have me in stitches in the break. Our production team, Matt Shirley, Bob Bragg, and Christine Barata, working from home tirelessly in all of this technology to put on this virtual show. And we hope that you enjoy it. Um, and we're so grateful that you're listening to it. Has anyone else made friends with their, their balcony neighbors across the road, by the way? I've I've uh, talked to so many neighbors to meet the neighbors Throughout this entire debacle, that's what for. I'm. A, I'll use a neutral word. Debacle is that neutral? Debacle uh, of uh, of COVID nineteen, and uh, it's been what a way to meet the neighbors. You learn a lot about your neighbors through the time they spend on their balconies. Al matters no na- no stranger to the neighbors of Washington D.C. He's a Democratic strategist and partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Al, how are you? How's the fam? Hey,
3: Kevin. A uh, great thanks. How are you holding
2: up? You know, I'm bored, but I'm grateful, and I am not bored with work, but, you know, it's, you know, all things considered, I, I have nothing to complain about. Uh, Al.
3: I like that. Uh, yeah, sir. Sure.
2: Go ahead. No, what were you going to say? I was just
3: going to say, I was just going to say, I like the joke, there no more days or nights or mornings. It's <laughs> just hours. Only hours. You know, I never liked,
2: I never liked the movie Groundhog Day. I thought it was the same thing over and over and over, but to live it, my Lord, it's just brutal. Huh. How's Joe Biden doing, Al?
3: I mean, he's doing about as well as he could be, don't you think? He has no access to uh, major media. No one's paying any attention to him. And yet he's leading in virtually every poll, including in some states that would shock people if you told them a year ago that would be the case, like North Carolina or Arizona.
2: So do you think, if, if you take us inside a Biden world, Al Mott, or Democratic strategist, Are they trying to recalibrate, readjust, because the entire fourth quarter messaging, come the fall, is going to be all about the recovery from this economic recession?
3: I mean, they have to, um, but the uh, readjustment is simply to focus on the president's uh, mismanagement of the situation Um, with more forethought, with more precautions, with earlier adjustments with more use of the Defense Production Act, we could be in a different spot. And I think that is a message they will hammer home, and they will point to the vice president's experience uh, in these very types of scenarios when he was in the Obama administration for eight years.
2: But, see, this is my question with regards to this. is I don't see that much as a significant strategy shift because prior to COVID-19 – Prior to the to the shut to the, uh, the the global shutdown, they were attacking the president on on that same point. They were hammering home on the rhetorical approach, and they were hammering home on uh, not being able, not not fit for for serving in office, the temperament argument, so to speak. That didn't work in Michigan. It didn't work in Wisconsin. It didn't work in Ohio or or southwestern Pennsylvania. Might work this time in Pennsylvania if you look at the polls and the midterms. But is that a risk? Because the president's saying, "I want to reopen the economy." And the Democrats want to keep the economy closed and hand out cash. The Democrats are saying absolutely not. Republicans don't want to fund the hospitals or the healthcare workers. So that's the partisan guide. That's the partisan walls, for lack of a better word, that has been constructed. But how does Biden offer a new economic vision at a time in which the SBA is running out of cash?
3: Well, I think that by the fall we'll be out of these Groundhog Days that we were just joking about. And people will have a different lens through which to look at this. And his vision will be one of economic growth, uh, of the recovery that the Obama administration provided, and of the decimated economy that this administration has uh, brought us to. And if you think about what's happened, while we did have an incredible growth the last couple of years, it was very weak in the underbelly. And there were so many people who were just getting by paycheck to paycheck, and now they're withering. And they're withering because this administration didn't buttress – the lower middle class and the middle class of this country. It only stared at the stock market and said, "Look at your four hundred one ks." A lot of voters don't even have four hundred
2: one ks. Well precisely, oh. I mean, and even just you know, it's it's the congressional ineptitude has just been baffling to say the least. The lack of urgency on both sides coming from the from the halls of Congress. All right, pivoting gear, switching lanes now. Uh, did you see this? The that McClatchy D.C. saying who will Joe Biden pick as his running mate? Here's what the Vegas betting odds show. Did you do you know, first of all, who Vegas is betting is placing the odds on who Biden will pick? Do you know? Because I'm going to ask you if you don't.
3: I don't. I, I actually like that stuff. And so I do check it out. But I don't.
2: <laughs> it is kind of fun. We shouldn't have Vegas or Wall Street betting on the future of our country.
3: Uh, Al, who who do
2: you think Vegas thinks is going to is going to win?
3: Probably Kamala Harris or Amy Klobuchar.
2: It's Kamala Harris. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. While pundits, I'm reading from McClatchy, while pundits are discussing the options, bookmakers in Las Vegas are setting betting lines for who Biden will pick. Sites listing the odds agree that Senator Kamala Harris is the favorite. I'm old enough to remember that first Democratic presidential debate when Harris whacked Biden. Remember that?
3: Oh, yeah. I remember it well. Uh, It was quite effective at the time. Look. He's a very personal politician. I think he's going to go with whoever he feels most comfortable with and who he thinks would make a good president because he is older and he may only do this for one term. If he decides that's her, then he'll go with it. But I think that Amy Klobuchar has got a great shot. Um, I think there's a number of other people out there like Governor Whitmer in, um, in Michigan,
1: yeah, Senator Cortez
3: Napstow in uh, Nevada, Governor Grisham in New Mexico. Uh, and maybe even Stacey Abrams, who almost won a governorship in Georgia. All of those folks are probably in the mix.
2: Yeah, those are all the people that that were listed. Klobuchar came in uh, second, actually, and then Elizabeth Warren was also on that list. I, I think
3: uh, I left her off. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I think Klobuchar presents a different type of offering, obviously, than Kamala Harris does. And especially if you look at the Midwest and when you when you look at how the Midwest, especially right now, is playing into the reopening argument where factions of the United States are going to be reopened uh, before other parts of the country. A Democrat to be able to take on uh, some of the Midwest argument could really be seen as an asset. Could it not be?
3: Oh, absolutely. And I think that he has proven electorally and while in Congress that he knows how to talk about Democrats and Republicans. And when you think back to 2016 and the the narrow margin in which Hillary Clinton lost, um, all we need to do to win this election is win those three states back, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. There's not going to be some other surprise like California or New York going to the Republican column. If Joe Biden wins those three states, he will be the president of the United States. And someone like Senator Harris, as attractive and charismatic as she is, is not going to be attractive to middle road Republican voters, Obama-Trump voters in those three states. And so I do, for that reason, think that Senator Klobuchar would be a better selection.
2: So that's what's going on at the presidential on the left side of the on the left for the Democrats. How is this going to impact down ballot races, something you know a lot about? Um, how are Democrats going to be trying to win back the seats that they won in the midterms from 2018?
3: I think that... um that most of those folks will be allowed to campaign on their own. The speaker will let those um, those purple district members campaign in a moderate lane if they have to and agree with the president where they must and disagree where they where they can, as opposed to just being a straight uh, line ticket in terms of advocacy. I think in the Senate, the Democrats have tremendous opportunities in Maine, in North Carolina, in Arizona, um, and across in Montana, in Colorado. And that there's a real chance uh, that we could wake up in early November with all Democratic control of, of government, which would be quite a shock. Indeed.
2: No, that I don't you don't think a supermajority. You're putting a supermajority. Well, if you were oh, in Vegas, oh, would you oh. bet on a supermajority?
3: Not supermajority like with President Obama when he had 60 Senate seats. But a Democratic controlled Senate is a real possibility. If you look at the state polls right now, particularly Arizona, Minnesota, I'm sorry, Arizona, North Carolina, Colorado, You're looking at likely pickups there. You throw in Governor Bullock in Montana, a very popular guy running for Senate against Steve Daines. You look at Susan Collins, who's running against a very good Democratic candidate, Sarah Gideon in Maine. And you can see the path whereby Democrats take the Senate back.
2: Bullock's a really interesting political figure. We've had him on the program a couple times. And, you know, he's one of those interesting political figures, doesn't really fit into the the, – the mainstream image of the cable news-esque type of of fodder that that we inside of the Beltway obsess over. Al, my friend, Al Motter, Democratic strategist uh, and someone who I guess is going to be watching Groundhog Day, but also a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Thank you for the time, my friend. Stay healthy, stay safe. Coming up, Hagar Shamali. We're talking about the World Health Organization. And remember, you can listen to President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing right here on Bloomberg 99.1, coming up in the next hour.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Here's the name you want to remember. Tedros Adhanom. Tedros Adhanom. He is the director. Director General of the World Health Organization, W.H.O., Dejros Adhanom, and he is, if you don't know his name now, you will uh, in the next couple of weeks. Hagar Shamali's back because I wanted to ask her yesterday about the World Health Organization and the president's criticism of it, as well as the questions that lawmakers in both parties Are asking about the World Health Organization and what exactly its role is in all of this. Why didn't did they have tests? Did they not have tests? I mean, I don't even know uh, where to start. Which is, but I do know who to start with, and that's Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategy. She's the former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. She's worked with both Democrats and Republicans in the span of her very multifaceted career. Hagar, thank you for joining me. All right, what's up with the World Health Organization?
1: Thanks, Kevin. Well, thanks for that kind introduction. Of course. Um, So listen, the World Health Organization is the UN's agency responsible for international public health. That is their sole task. And so what that means that what they do is they are supposed to address global pandemics. They uh, improve health for the world's poorest and most vulnerable. So that means they, you know, make sure that they administer vaccines around the world for measles and polio. They try to make sure that maternity health around the world is adequate and, and improving. And so, you know, so they have their hand in all of these parts, um, and they are physically all over the world. And they have had some success with certain things, like especially when it comes to, to improving health for the poor, um, and they have been good about containing the Ebola crisis that started last year, the one that's in the Congo.
2: Well, they the one, totally messed this up.
1: Yeah, th- Yes, yes. They've made a number of mistakes. And by the way, it, it's not the first time. They made a number of mistakes now with COVID, and they've made a number of mistakes in general. They are a bureaucratic organization. They are incredibly slow. Um, I witnessed it when I was in the government myself. They... Um, when I was at the U.S. Mission to the UN, which is how I intimately know this agency, um, and the 2014 Ebola crisis was going on, uh, they didn't—they didn't move. I mean, that 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 crisis threatened to kill a million people before President Obama made the decision. So l- to let's step say pause
2: in. for a second because you're saying. Yeah. The, 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 what, so if, if you're listening to this. Uh, the, the, the follow up is just why, why don't they move? What is it? like when you say they don't move, define that, spell that out for me. What does it mean when you say they don't move? Does it mean they're not they're not moving fast with their and voting or or what are they not doing?
1: Sure, you know this is not actually unique to a lot of u n agencies that they be that they're slow and bureaucratic, and so in order for them to Get resources somewhere in order for them to, for example, declare a global pandemic, which they did not do with COVID until mid March. I mean, at this point, we were quarantined. Really, we were all staying at home, at least in the Northeast. Um, by the time that they had made this declaration, you know, so when they said this, a lot of us were like, "Okay, yeah." I mean, CNN has made that declaration already, right? Uh, like- that's what I just don't
2: <laughs> understand. And I, and, I, and, I, and I'm a journalist, but I, what you just said, I mean, and, and folks who are listening, Hagar is is as. Non-partisan as they come. And so the fact that other countries, not just the United States, but other countries, including the U.S., were getting these orders from their government and warnings from their government to shelter in place, to stay indoors, the closing down of businesses, of churches, places of worship, of schools, everything, and the World Health Organization and this leader, Chief Tedros, doesn't even call it a pandemic pandemic. Are you uh, To me, right. it's it's almost as infuriating as Congress not replenishing SBA.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's infuriating because this is literally one of their biggest roles is to do that. Because once they declare something a global pandemic, there are a number of steps that go into place. But it's also about awareness, right? I mean, so we are all, you know, for example, I live in the New York area. I traveled to Washington, D.C. in early March. And I was a little paranoid. I mean, I was wiping down my seat on Amtrak and, and so on. But – I shouldn't have been traveling then, technically, because the pandemic was going on, and yet they hadn't even declared it. Hello? Declared it, I was crisscrossing I the country. I was crisscrossing yeah. the globe. I mean, right. all of us were. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Right. It came as a surprise to a lot of people, and that's, that's really unfortunate because that's their one of their main jobs is, is global awareness, is information sharing as quickly as possible. Um, they have resources to help with everything, whether it's tests. Or getting medicine around the world, or you know, whatever it might be. But in a, in a situation like a global pandemic, information is is really power, and they really lagged on that. And then, the, and then a big piece of that that President Trump is not wrong about. He's been inconsistent, but he is not wrong about is their coziness with President Xi. Of well, China. that's what
2: I want to. That's this. That's where I want to go in the remainder of time. So Tedros and China explain this dynamic between the top of the World Health Organization and Xi Jinping.
1: Right. So they, the chief of the World Health Organization and the agency overall uh, has, in general, a problem with being too friendly with dictators. They and I witnessed this again when I was in government. They are very close to the Syrian regime, and they are close to President Xi. And the reason that, that they, they do this, the reason they have these cozy relationships, is because – um, right or wrong, they operate in a world where they're not really able to do much in, in a sovereign country's borders without the agreement of the government, right? Now, the difference that you have in a more democratic nation is that a democratic nation, if, if, if the U.N. or the World Health Organization comes and says, listen, you have this problem and we're here to help, then that, a, a, a more democratic society is going to say, "Like, okay, great, well, thanks, come in, whereas a dictatorship – that is naturally already threatened by criticism um, or anything foreign is going to be very difficult. About so, I, so they have, yeah,
2: I hear They're, what you're saying and that mm-hmm. I, 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 it's not, I hear what you're saying. The follow I'm up. Not that justifying I, it. No, I, I I'm know not. you're not. And, and I don't hear justification coming from you in, in any way, shape or form. So I, so I, but the, but the question that I have is, okay, it's one thing to cozy up to someone, but in the midst of a crisis, if, if the whole point of cozying up to someone is to achieve an outcome in a time of crisis, okay, here's the crisis, WHO. Why didn't you – if the, you're cozied up to them for so many years so that you could have access to the information and get the information to help save the world literally from a pandemic, they didn't, they didn't even execute their mission.
1: Right. It's a major weakness on their part. You're totally right. But it's
2: it's, it's even more than a – it's a lack of common sense. I mean, this is so simple. If you're going to suck up to a dictator, you better get (laughs) something in return.
1: Exactly. You're right. I mean, that's why they do it, right? That's why they do it in Syria. That's why – I mean, ostensibly they do it in China is if they're going to suck up to President Xi, then they should be able to get their people on the ground. They should be able to get – A proper investigation they should be able to get the truth out and they were not able to get any of that done and on and and in the meantime this has real a real obviously a very real effect on the whole world right um and by the way president trump is not the only one that's angry about this i mean there have been others who have voiced concern i mean you've definitely seen it in the media but today the japanese prime minister abe so abe yeah Yeah, he came out and he said, you know, yeah, though WHO has a lot of problems, I too am not happy about their political relationships, especially with President Xi, and we're going to be reviewing our funding after this pandemic is over.
2: And what Um, what are the Europeans saying?
1: Well, the Europeans are a bit more – I mean, they they have not gone into talking about funding. They're not they talking have... about anything. I mean, they're not
2: yeah. talking about China. They're not talking about the World Health Organization. No. I don't I don't get that. Hagar, we have to leave it there. I cannot <laughs> thank you enough for your time. Let me tell you something, folks. She knows what she's talking about, and every time I listen to her, I learn. So Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, giving us another segment of her time. So incredibly appreciative, filled with gratitude, the former Treasury spokesperson for Terry and financial intelligence also having done intricate work with the United Nations as well she's had a fascinating career I hope she writes a book and that does it for me we'll be back on Monday right here on Bloomberg you can list down you, you can listen to the president's daily coronavirus task force briefing I'm Kevin cerilli have a great weekend you're listening to Bloomberg 991.